The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled The Birth of the Peacemaker. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Well, I'd like to pull back the curtains for a moment, if I may. Some of you have been very gracious and kind to me over the last several weeks. Uh, come up to me and share a little bit about what you've been learning, um, not just through this Advent series, but, but through the First Peter series that we've been making our way through as well. And so I'd like to share a little bit with you of, of what I'm learning. Now, one, one thing that I, I'm learning is that I, I love preaching. Uh, and it's not just because you guys humor me by sitting here for 45 minutes. Sometimes I push it a little bit, you know. Uh, you, you don't just sit there and humor me week after week. But I, the reason why I love preaching is because together we come together at God's word. We're a diverse group of people. If you were to survey this congregation, you would see that nobody's the same here. We have different lives, different scenarios, different struggles, yet we all come to God's word together because there's something there for everyone. Now, one of the fun parts of my job as a pastor, is to go before God and, and ask, God, what is it that you want to show us? What, what do you want to show your people? And usually from this, uh, uh, he, he kind of gives me some clarity in what we're going to do as far as what, what book we're studying, what kind of series we're going to be in, right? The question is, what do we as a church need to learn in order to grow in our identity as a family of missionary servants? Now, usually... Well, when God's like, okay, this is the book, you know, First Peter, I felt God say, hey, this is what we need to know. If we want to be a, a culture or a church that engages the culture, that's faithful to the gospel, we need to understand what Peter's unpacking in First Peter. So you, you go to like books like First Peter, you have an idea about what's going to be in there. You have an, I have an idea about the, the main point, right, the, the reoccurring themes, what, what God is really going to use uh, and communicate to us through that, that series, but the interesting thing is, even though you, I kind of had that rough idea, it seems like God always drops a surprise in there. And he's like, yeah, I wanted you to know this, but boom, here's, here's something else that you didn't know that you needed to know. Here's something else that I want to communicate to you to get to the heart of things, a deeper, more profound truth. Now, sometimes I think that's, that's for me personally, um, that God has stuff that he's trying to sort out in my life before I get up here behind the pulpit. Right? He's trying to address stuff that's going in my heart so I can com effectively communicate to, to God's people. Now, other times it syncs up with these unforeseen events that are going on in the church, and it happens to resonate greatly. Right? It, it's a timely word. But sometimes there's this, this mix of it. it. It has a way of covering a broad spectrum where, where this series or, or passage or text or whatever, whatever resonates with, with a variety of people for various reasons. Now, what, from what I'm hearing, this Advent season's been a little bit like that, right? I think some of us have been surprised or maybe caught off guard even by what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. It's been one that has, has sort of stuck with many of you, who's resonated with many of you. 
And I knew uh, when we jumped into this passage, the, or the, the, the series, The Birth of a Peacemaker, I, I kind of had an idea of what was going to go on, right? This, this passage that Elizabeth first read from Luke chapter 2, where Simeon prophesies over Jesus that he would be responsible for the rise and the fall of many. So I, I had this idea going into this that Jesus would really be showing that some people are going to be drawn to him, some people will be repulsed by him, right? There's no neutral response to Jesus. It's one or the other. But what I wasn't expecting to see, even though it's right there in that passage, is how effectively and how precisely Jesus exposes our hearts. See, that's what, that's what the second part of Simeon's prophecy is in Luke chapter 2. Not only would Jesus be responsible for the rising and the fall of many, but he would expose the thoughts of the heart. And so as we've been going through these scenarios throughout the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with real people, he is exposing hearts. And I believe that he's doing the same thing with us today. As we sit here, as we gather around his word, as we long to hear from God, his word sort of penetrates, cuts through. It exposes our hearts. See, as, as we go through these gospel narratives, we see that Jesus crosses paths with a diverse group of people. Each story, each person he talks to is different. They have different struggles, different sins, different hurts and wounds, all of that. It's different. But he lovingly and truthfully tailors every single interaction he has to fit that person. Now, this is a great example to learn from. If, if we are a family of missionary servants, if we believe God has called us, all of us, all believers, into the ministry, this is something that we ought to look at Jesus and, and learn from, right? The Spirit has led Jesus in a specific way to speak to specific peoples at a specific time. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to his ministry. While Jesus engages different kinds of people, there's a commonality to everyone. And I, I didn't honestly realize this until last week in the middle of my sermon, okay? Uh, I did not realize it doesn't matter whether rich or poor, religious or irreligious, moral or immoral, young or old, sick or well, regardless of what the surface level expression of that person's life might look like, when you get down to the core, there's always a striking similarity between everyone. Here's what it is. Everyone has a fear of being found out. Everyone has this, this anxiety or, or this suspicion when their heart is exposed, right? When, when the dark secrets come out, when our thoughts are brought to the surface. It's, sometimes it's a, a conscious fear, right? We, we know we know that that's there, right? There's something to hide. There's something to cover up, right? That would be the case of, of the woman who was caught in adultery last week. Right? She knew that she had a dark secret. But for a lot of us, it might be a subconscious fear. Right? We're, we're af afraid to look at the substance of our heart. We're afraid to look because we might see something that we don't like, right? Which would have been exactly what happened with the religious leaders from last week's passage. So we can kind of 
relate to this on either end of the spectrum, consciously or subconsciously. There's this fear we all have of being exposed. And in light of this fear, what we would rather do is to keep our hearts hidden. We'd, we'd like to keep it under wraps. We'd like to keep from this bad stuff from bubbling up to the surface. And so to cope with this, we tend to live dishonestly with ourselves, with other people. Our fears and our insecurities about what's really at the, the core of our hearts. It keeps us in sort of a paranoid state. Say stuff like, man, they can't know. They, they don't want to know the real me. If they knew the real me, right, I wouldn't have any friends left. Nobody would be around anymore. They'd get scared off. You might lose friends. You might be shut out, disowned, rejected, humiliated. You might just feel like you're isolated. And so what happens is we start to live a life that's driven by this fear of being exposed. And this fear drives us to, to create a false self, a pretend version of us. It's not real, but a, a false self that we deem more suitable or socially acceptable. Right? It, it's an edited version of ourselves. Right? This is what ha- has happened with the social media era. Right? Almost everybody is on some sort of social media, right? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. And we're constantly putting out this image of, of who I am, what I'm like. And it's not just on our social media. We do this in real life. Even, even when it comes to this holiday season, we're sending off Christmas letters, right? We're putting out an edited version of ourselves. It takes a lot of time and energy and effort to live that way, to constantly be editing ourselves, to keep the the ugly suppressed and let the good kind of rise up. We do this with our friends and our family. We do this with our MC family, right? Because of this fear that we all have, it sort of becomes second nature to live this way. So much so that, that I believe that if we were to cross paths with Jesus today in the flesh, we would do it to him too. We either walk away with shame, knowing, man, my heart is it's just too ugly for Jesus to look at and to love, or we would waltz, waltz up to him with some sort of false pretense, like, oh, Jesus, look at me. I've got it together. But here's the thing, friends. Jesus sees right through it. He sees through the anxiety that this causes, and he wants to offer you a peace that will subside all of those fears. See, Jesus doesn't pretend like he can't see our heart, like he doesn't see the mess that's going on inside of us. One of the most chilling things in the gospel accounts is when Jesus comes across somebody and scripture says he looked at them and he knew them and he loved them. It's like Jesus has this x-ray vision that that whatever facade we put forward, Jesus can see right through it. He knows what's really going on underneath. Jesus wants to expose that. See, a lot of us can't be honest with that about ourselves. But Jesus sees it and he wants to expose it because that's the only way to have this true peace that he offers It's to to see what you really are like 
and to accept the love that Jesus gives you regardless. Church, I think Jesus is trying to do something special right now with this church. I think he is wanting to expose our hearts, their true self, not to humiliate us, not to mock us, not to reject us, which, which seems to be what, what typically happens when you are vulnerable. You express your true self to a friend or family member. You, you might get hurt. See, Jesus doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to make you feel bad. He wants to expose your realness so he can express his real love for real people who have messy hearts. See, and as we, as we sort of marinate in this love, this real love that Jesus offers us, it slowly deconstructs every false and pretend version of ourself that we try to create. See, Jesus' love is so real. It's the most real thing there is, right? It's not a hypothetical love. See, Jesus has a real love for real, real people. It's impossible for him to love hypothetically. It's impossible for Jesus to love fake people. He doesn't have a fake love. He has a real love for real people. And so it's only when the real you is exposed can you receive the real love that Jesus has for you. Now, Jesus, what we've been seeing here, at least with our series, we've been talking, Jesus is the peacemaker. Isaiah 9 says that he's the prince of peace. And from Jesus, there is a peace that flows out of him that will cease every anxiety and fear that you have. But to lay hold of that kind of peace requires an honesty and a vulnerability. It requires you to stop pretending, to stop hiding See, Jesus already knows your heart, whether you know it or not. And what he's graciously doing is, is trying to sort of pull back the curtain on your own heart so you can see accurately for yourself, so you can understand your own heart. See, and as Jesus exposes your heart, it's going to reveal the subconscious desire that everyone has that can only be filled by him. See, that's what Jesus is doing this Advent season. He's exposing our hearts to draw us closer to him. He desires to give us a real peace that will debunk every insecurity, every fear, every distraction that comes across. Now, as we open up our Bibles today to John chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus do exactly that with the Samaritan woman that he meets at the well. See, this woman has been pretending She's been faking it. She's been chasing these desires in her heart. And she meets Jesus. She, her, her heart is exposed, and, it, and Jesus reveals what she really desires. And in this one interaction, she is completely changed. Absolutely, completely changed. See, what, what we see here is is a woman who's timid, who's bashful, who's insecure, walking to a well. And then we see a, a joyful, unapologetically confident woman who, who walks away with a message that she can't wait to tell other people. Jesus radically changes this woman. And Jesus is eager to do the same with you today if you'd let him.
Now, if you'd open up to John chapter 4, and that's, let's see, that's towards the last quarter of your Bible. John chapter 4, and, and there's a lot of text here, and I don't have time to go through all of it, but let me just quickly breeze over verses 1 through 6, because uh, John is writing, and he begins by setting the stage for this interaction that Jesus has. He says that Jesus has been doing ministry, and he's tired. Now, there's something to learn from that right there, that Jesus, Jesus is tired from doing ministry. Now, MC leaders, I know we're at the time of the year, and people who are engaged with doing ministry, we're at the time of the year where it seems like things are ramping up, and there's all this stuff going on, and we're just fatigued, and you know what? It's okay. Jesus was fatigued. He's tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty, and so he sits down at a well, and while his, he's resting, his disciples go into the city to buy food. Now, for the purpose of just focusing in on this woman at the well, what I, I want to ignore what's going to happen with the disciples, and so there's a chunk of scripture from verse 30, uh, where it's 31. Um, we're just going to sort of set that aside for today and focus on the woman and Jesus meets the Samaritan woman as she comes to draw water from the well at the sixth hour of the day. Now, this is an important detail to this narrative here. There's, there's significance to their The sixth hour is about noon. Now, most women in this time would go fetch water first thing in the morning. It would be sort of a communal effort. It's sort of like, you know, how my grandpa, when he was... Uh, when he was still around, he'd always go to the coffee shop in the morning, spend hours there drinking coffee, playing cards with his buddies. You know, that's, that's sort of the same sort of cultural experience that these women would have. They would go to the well together, socialize, get the job done, and they go on their way. But there's something different about this woman who goes to the well. She doesn't go when all the other women are going. She kind of goes in isolation. She goes by herself when she knows nobody else will be there. Now, as we go through the story, we see that it's not just because she doesn't like crowds, right? She's not an introvert, or maybe she is, but, but that's not why she's going at that time. She's going at the time because there's something in her that is deeply ashamed. She's fearful of what others think about her, about being her true self around those people. She's just at a loss. Now, as Jesus interacts with this woman, he's going to expose her here. He's going to reveal why, why it is that she's going to the well at the middle of the day. It's because she just doesn't fit in. She doesn't fit in with the other woman. In fact, she doesn't even fit in with Jesus either as she quickly acknowledges this. In verse 7, Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and in verse 9, she fires back. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, asks for a drink of water from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Right? She's exposing the apparent differences between her and Jesus. She says, you know, Jesus, you're a, a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. That, that we're socially, racially, we're divided. Why would you interact with me? Right? Here's another thing. She's a woman, and he's a male teacher. That interaction wouldn't happen at that time. Men wouldn't interact with women. So there's a sense where she is culturally different, socially different than Jesus. She doesn't fit in. 
And so she feels like Jesus has no business with her. You might even take this as her being rude and sort of standoffish, as if she's saying, Jesus, you know, just leave me alone. Why are you bothering me? Now, if Jesus were a peacemaker according to cultural standards and norms, he would have tried to keep the peace by not even interacting with this woman. He would have not even acknowledged her. The social norms would have said Jesus would have just kept to his own business and she would have done her business. No talk, no interaction, no acknowledgement. But Jesus, he's not interested in keeping things politically correct. Jesus is here on a mission. If you look earlier in in verses, um, I think it's in verse 5, he says that he had to go there. Now, later on, he's going to expose why. What's the compulsion? Well, it's, it's he's doing the will of his Father. He's doing the ministry that God has laid out before him. And so to stay in line with the Spirit and what God is doing, he crosses these social lines. He ruffles feathers. He does it with no apology. So much so that the disciples, when they come back in verse 27, they marvel at Jesus. And, and, and they should have been asking, what are you doing talking to this woman? But they're just so shocked that they don't say anything at all. See, Jesus doesn't keep the social, cultural peace. He presses forward because the mission of God tells him to. And not only are his disciples shocked that Jesus is talking to this woman, this woman is also shocked that this man, this Jewish man, would be talking to her And so she seems standoffish. She doesn't fit in with her own people, so why in the world would she fit in with this Jewish teacher? What would he want to have to do with her? Now, if you just think, if you put yourself in this woman's shoes for just a moment, she's probably so used to being harassed, bullied, mocked, ridiculed, treated like an outsider, that when she actually interacts with kindness, when with someone with pure intentions, she just immediately is defensive. She's being self-protective here. She knows what it's like to be hurt, and she doesn't like it, so she'll push people away. When she feels people moving in, she pushes, she gives them the stiff arm to leave them at an arm's length. Now, a lot of us can relate to this. A lot of us, we've been sinned against horribly. People have hurt us. We have wounds. We have scars, bruises. We know what it's like to be hurt, and we don't like it. I know exactly what that feels like. We've been wounded, and the pain just kind of lingers with us. And oftentimes, it's the words of the people that we love most that hurt the most. She's trying to be self-protective here. She's trying to conceal her vulnerability. She's trying to keep people at an arm's length, even if that means the one person who can make her well again, who can heal her wounds, that's Jesus. So she sort of pushes him away Now, if you live this way, if you're always keeping people at arm's length, eventually what's going to happen, you're going to cut yourself off from everyone in your life that loves you. 
You're going to find yourself isolated, alone. I mean, you might have relationships, but at best, they're, they're just acquaintances, surface level. Right? Nobody really knows you. This is scary. To live that way, to be vulnerable like that, to be honest, to expose yourself, that's hard. It's scary. And I've been there. Some days I feel like I go back to that, right? It's easier to keep myself walled off, keep everybody at arm's length. If you've been hurt, you can relate to this. To be in that place, it's lonely, it's dehumanizing. Like literally strips you of your humanity. We are creatures that were made for relationship and to thrive in a relationship. But when we're hurt, we have this tendency to keep people at bay. Now I think when, when we're just always trying to keep people out, I think, I think that's a lot like what hell is like. A place where we are stripped of our humanity. We're spiritually, relationally dehydrated and our lives just shrivel up. See, this woman, she's been living in that little hell. She's been isolated, unwanted, humiliated. She's been burned by relationships. And Jesus looks at her and he knows that. He knows her story. In fact, that's what she says later on when she walks away from Jesus. This man knows everything that I did. Now, it's not like Santa Claus where he keeps a list of being naughty and nice. Jesus knows her story. He knows her wounds, her aches, her pains. Jesus looks at her and he knows her. And he knows that he has something so relevant to give her. And so despite her hard shell and being standoffish, Jesus presses on with this relationship with gentle and kind persistence. Like Jesus knows that the 10 minutes that he might spend with her could completely change her life forever by speaking to the deep heart issues. So in verse 10, he keeps pressing on in the conversation. He says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is saying, if you knew who I was, these roles would be reversed here. You would be asking me for living water. Jesus is saying, I have something far better to offer you than what you can offer me from this well. I can give you living water. Now, if I'm there and Jesus is saying, I'll give you living water, I'm like, what in the world is living water? I have no category for that. There's no heartbeat. (laughs) What, What is living water? But that's not the question that this woman is worried about. She she's more worried about logistics. Like, how are you going to get this living water? She says in in verse 11 and 12, she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And in the middle of of talking, I think she comes to this realization here. She says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
Now, as she's talking, she's processing what Jesus is saying, and she finally realizes that what Jesus is saying here is that he has something better than this water. He says to her, she says to him, she says, this water from this well that Jacob's given us, this is responsible for the flourishing of our people, right, of our land, of our, of our livestock. How can you give us something better than this? And Jesus, he draws this contrast between the water that's in the well and this living water that he wants to offer her in verses 13 and 14. He goes on and says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus takes this common physical need that we all have, the need of thirst, right? We all get thirsty. We drink several times a day. You're supposed to drink a lot of water. I don't know what the actual ratio is, but you're supposed to drink a lot of water. Your body needs it. Jesus takes this common physical need that we all share and he ties it to a deep, universal, spiritual reality that we all have in common as well. See, just as your body needs to be replenished by water, your soul, your heart has a thirst as well. Now, you might not be aware of it, but everyone has either a conscious or subconscious thirst in their heart, a, a, a heart thirst that they must yield to. And what Jesus is offering her is a water that satisfies the thirst of your soul so deeply and profoundly that you are never thirsty again. But it's even more than that, not just quenching your thirst he says that if you drink it, you become a well full of it, like a spring bubbling up. That is significant here, and we'll see why in a moment. But he says that water becomes a spring of water inside of you that, that flows out of you, welling up into eternal life. Now, there's something about what Jesus says about this living water that this woman is just drawn to. It resonates with her big time. In verse 15, like, she doesn't even really have a clear idea about this, what this living water is, at least not from this dialogue that, that John lays out. But she says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink to draw water. She is clearly tired of being physically thirsty, but I think even more to this, what it's pointing to is this deep spiritual fatigue that she has from her spiritual thirst, always having to go back for more and more and more. And with this one statement that follows, Jesus opens up a dialogue that exposes her heart, that really reveals what this woman thirsts for. Take a look at verses 16. She says, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now right here we see 
in this woman's life the difficulty of living honestly. Right? She says, I have no husband, which is a half-truth. Right? She's currently not married, as Jesus says, but she's had five husbands, and she's with yet another man who's not currently her husband. Now, clearly, in this woman's life, there is a pattern that's being exposed here. It's her thirst for men. Not specifically men, but her, her, her thirst for affection, for validation, ultimately her thirst for love. Now, Jesus is saying to her, I see that your soul is thirsty, and you keep going to man after man to try to quench that thirst, and what you're finding is that none of their loves will satisfy what you're craving. They might be okay for a minute, but eventually they leave you wanting. And there's not a single person in this room today that does not struggle with this in some way or another. Now, it might not be exactly the same as this woman. Right? Maybe you do use romantic relationships in order to fill the void. Right? You're searching for the love that will finally settle your heart. But maybe it's different. Maybe, maybe you're using your professional achievements. Right? You're trying to make your way up the ladder to satisfy that, that, that desire to... to to be great, to prove that you're something. Right? You say, well, you know, when this, when this project is finally done then, and you get done with it, it's the next project and the next one. Maybe it's, maybe it's even within your sanctification, right? When you're saying, when I don't struggle with this sin anymore, right, then I'll be happy. Maybe when I'm a better MC leader, we have this thirst, this drive that keeps, keeps us pushing and pushing and pushing, going to different waters that don't satisfy. Now, whatever shape this takes, the thirst in your heart will keep on popping up, right? You'll have to keep going to a well to drink for it. You're trying to constantly quench that thirst more and more and more, be better and better and better, So when you realize this, you and I, we have a lot in common with this woman at the well. See, the metaphor is this, that each man that the woman has had in the past is a well that she goes to to drink from. She draws it dry, she runs out of water, and she's on to the next. Or she realizes, you know what, this water tastes really bad. On to the next. See, Jesus is exposing her heart here. She's expo- he's exposing what her heart's desire is. Now, Jesus, with pinpoint accuracy, says, this is what you're doing. This is how you're living. And in verse 19, it's almost funny. Jesus lays this all out, and she goes, hmm. I think you might be a prophet. How, how could you possibly know this about me? The realness of her heart is exposed. You know, and she does what, what we all tend to do, right? When the realness of our heart gets exposed, we try to change the subject. She tries to steer the conversation away from her fa- heart. I just said fart. Away from her heart. <laughs> she, 
She's trying to steer the conversation away from her heart. She opens up this big theological question that Jews and Samaritans have been arguing about for many years. See, that's what's happening in verses 20 through 26. All this talk about where to worship is the argument that's been going on. The Jews thought the place to worship God was in the temple. The Samaritans thought it was up on this mountain where there's a sort of shrine set up to worship God. Now, so she starts this big dialogue, right? Which one is it? It's her attempt to sort of distract Jesus from what's really going on in her heart. Now, I don't know how many times something like this has happened in missional community. Right? Maybe you've experienced it. Someone's heart is being exposed. Right? You're trying to speak graciously into their life, trying to address an issue, this, this soul thirst. And all of a sudden, this person wants to start talking the logistics of Reformed theology or why we baptize babies. Right? They use this theology as a distraction from letting Jesus get to the real substance of the heart. Oh, man. Some of us get so uncomfortable with being truly known, right? And that happens. When you're in an authentic community, you will be truly known. And so we, we try to use all of these diversions, but, but when all of the diversions don't work, it seems like it's time for us to leave, to, to pull out. Now, this is exactly what this lady is trying to do in verse 25. Look what she's saying here. The woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now what she's saying here is, you know, I guess we'll never know. She's trying to use that as an out from the conversation. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't let her. Oh, he's like, oh yeah, that, that Messiah? Guess, like, that's me. I'm the one, and I'm telling you, I'm revealing. And he's so gracious that he actually does answer this, this theological question that he has, that she has. But then he keeps pressing on. See, Jesus isn't there just there to reveal and provide theological clarity. He is there to reveal her heart. He's there to point her to waters, living waters that will satisfy. Now, real heart work tends to be hard and messy. Right? When your heart's getting exposed, it feels like you're just in a crucible. It's difficult. You're exposing some owies and bumps and bruises. But in the end, it's always worth it. If you're willing to go through the process, if you're willing to let your heart be exposed, if you're, letting, if you're willing to let Jesus say, hey, you know what, this is what I see going on. See, if you're willing to be honest with yourself, you'll see how every other well in your life is running dry. One by one. You look, that thing's not sufficient in my life. That's not sufficient to sustain me. Until all, you go through all of the wells that might attract you, that might lure you in, until all of them have proven to be void of significance and meaning. Until Jesus is the only one that's left. That's what happens when we're honest with ourselves. 
one by one, you start to see that Jesus is the only one who can quench your thirst. But saying that is one thing. To say that Jesus, oh Jesus, you satisfy my heart, that's one thing. But actually experiencing it is something completely different. See, you can say it all you want, but until your heart is really satisfied in Jesus, you won't know how true that is. There has to be an experiential encounter, not just, not just up in your head, but something in your heart where you say, my heart has been exposed and I've found Jesus and he is what I crave. That requires honesty. Now this woman, you look at this text and you wonder, how does she flip so quickly Right. What, what changes? What, change, like what did Jesus say to make her just completely change here? She encountered Jesus. She went to the well that won't run, won't run dry. She found the well that will satisfy and she drank deeply. Now for those of us who, who crave this experience, I know I crave this experience every day. Right? We gotta be asking the question, how do I experience this? Not just one time, but day by day, moment by moment. How do I draw from this well? The answer begins with this. Stop pretending. Stop deceiving yourself. Stop living in half-truths. Be honest with yourself. Look, Jesus already knows all about you. There's nothing that you can possibly hide from him. Start being honest about yourself. And bring that to Jesus. Confess, I've been going to other wells to drink. And you can even be really honest. You can, I go to other wells to drink, and you know what? It satisfies me for a moment. There's something there that I like. But in the end, it doesn't, it doesn't really satisfy. It just makes me more thirsty. It's like drinking salt water. It just dehydrates me more and more. I need something real, something that can sustain me. See, this is the biblical definition of, of sin. Going to anything but God for our identity, for our joy, for our purpose, or for our satisfaction, that's what sin is. And when you confess that I'm a sinner, that when I'm going to, to different places, you finally free yourself up to accept what Jesus is offering you. See, at first your confession is condemning, right? I'm a sinner, But what Jesus offers you is liberating from that condemnation. See, honestly, honesty is the only requirement here to say that I am more sinful than I thought, that I'm going to all these other wells. But it's right there where Jesus meets you where you're at. That's where he first offers himself for you. In your place, Jesus took the consequences of sin, right? Because you keep going to wells that are not Jesus, your soul is shriveling up. You're dehydrated. It's ultimately going to kill you. So Jesus goes to the cross in your place where, where your soul is shriveled up. 
He dies the death that should have been yours due to the poison that you've been drinking. Listen, and it's no, con- no coincidence here that on the cross, as Jesus is dying, you know what he says? He says, I thirst. That well you're drinking from, that's not Jesus. It's going to leave you thirsty. It left Jesus thirsty. He went to the cross for you so that he could give himself to you. So that you could drink deeply from his living water. So that you could experience something that will finally satisfy what your heart is craving. To quench your heart's thirst. To allow you to be honest with yourself and to be honest with others, but still know my heart is satisfied. That's what happened to this woman at the well. She had the freedom to finally come out of hiding, to be honest with herself, to to, to reveal and expose and to to communicate, to, to confess her need for Jesus and the living water that he offered her. And you know what happens when she drank deeply? Not only was she satisfied by what she was drinking, from her a spring burst forth. See, in verses 28 through 30, what this woman does, she leaves Jesus. Actually, it's significant. She leaves behind the jug that she would have been scooping up water from the well. She says, I've left that life behind me. That's what that signifies. I'm leaving that life behind me. I've been so satisfied by Jesus that I'm going out now to tell others. Right? That's what it looks like. When you've tasted Jesus, a spring bursts forth from your life. Now, some of you, some of you think you've tasted Jesus, but there's no evidence of a spring bursting forth from your life. Now, don't be scared. If that's the case, all that means is you need to drink deeper. You need to be more honest about yourself. You need to go to Jesus in humility. This is my heart. This is what I need, and I need you. And when you come to Jesus, he will give you himself. He will satisfy your soul. And from you, a spring will burst forth. See, this woman, as she comes out of hiding, as she's honest about herself, as she's, she's just like, this is who I am, and I have found what my heart desires. When you live like that, there is no more fear. Right? The ugliest thing about you has already been exposed, and you know what Jesus does? He meets it with love and grace. And because this woman starts to be honest with herself and be, come out of hiding, other people start to come out of hiding. Other people have heard about this, what, what Jesus offers, and they come for themselves to take a drink. Friends, this morning Jesus is offering us a drink to come to living waters to leave the jug of whatever other waters that we were going to to drink from that, that always make us come back and back and back and back and to drink from him. This morning as we come to the table, the elements, the body and the blood of Christ prove, proves Satisfaction. It proves 
One, that God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. See, that, that, that when you are in Christ, that when your faith is placed on Christ, God is satisfied with that, even as messy as your heart is. That your righteousness not, cannot be done by yourself, but it's accomplished by Christ. And here's the other thing it, it proves, that you yourselves are satisfied. That as you come, the only thing that you have in your hands is nothing. And Jesus, Jesus satisfies the void that you have by placing himself there. His body, his blood for you to satisfy your heart's desires. Friend, let us come and feast. Let us drink deeply from the fountain of living water. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for knowing us better than we know ourselves. Thank you for graciously peeling back the layers that we so often try to hide behind to show us what we're really like and to love real people with all our mess. Father God, I pray that you would lead us into a season where we, where we can find and discover real honesty, where we can no longer hide but put ourselves out there, not, not just for, for ourselves to see, but to, to bring ourselves before you and to know that just as I am, you love us. Just as I am, you provide for us, you satisfy us. Father, with this meal, satisfy us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.